All right. Good morning, everyone. How was everyone's week? Blessed? Awesome. So this morning, we'll be continuing on the age of the Earth and our young Earth creationist view. Um, but first, let's, let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you so much for this day, Lord. And uh, I just thank you that we are able to gather here, Lord, and we can worship you uh, and be able to fellowship and study your word. And uh, just give us wisdom and understanding. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So if you guys remember last week, we left off on, did you have a question, baby? Oh, <laughs> we left off on the, um, the speed of which the earth is rotating and that the earth's speed at which it rotates controls something called the Coriolis effect of wind patterns, right? And we've shown, we've seen a decreasing magnetic field on the earth, we've seen decreasing rotational speed on the earth, so that means we can figure out, well, it used to be going faster, right? Well, how much faster? Do you guys remember the inverse square law that I uh, taught last week, okay? So if we go back just a million years in time based on the rotational de decrease that we've seen on the Earth, it would have been spinning so incredibly fast. Can you imagine the wind effects at that time, what it would be, okay? We'd be in gale force winds all the time. And also, if it was spinning that much faster, can you imagine your day? You know, wake up, go sleep, wake up, go sleep, wake up, go sleep, wake up, go sleep, right? I mean, you would never be able to get anything done, not to mention the centrifugal force would be astronomical. Um, what do I mean by that? Do you guys ever ride that ride at the fair that makes you stick to the wall, that thing? That's what the entire planet would be like, okay? We would be spinning that much faster. Okay, the next part, the Sahara Desert. So the Sahara Desert has a prevailing wind pattern, okay? Does anyone know what a prevailing wind means? Yeah, go ahead. So a prevailing wind is the, 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 the direction that the wind normally blows. Exactly. Like we usually get the Right, right. It goes in one direction, okay? It always blows the same way, sort of. But this creates a serious problem as far as the Sahara Desert goes. The hot air from the desert comes up, it kills the foliage next door, and that becomes the desert. This is a process known as desertification, right? Clever name. So the Sahara Desert has been studied very, very carefully in this process. They came to the conclusion that it is only about 4,000 years old for the entire Sahara Desert based on the rate at which we see the desertification um, taking place. So what does that mean? When it started growing about 4,000 years ago, Egypt used to be a completely fertile land all over the place. And we can see evidence of that through their hieroglyphics, um, through ancient writings. I mean, their agriculture was enormous in Egypt. Okay, so I have a question here. If the earth is millions of years old, why don't we have a bigger desert someplace? Why is the largest desert only 4,000 years old? Well. I have a theory about that. My theory is about 6,000 years ago, God created everything. About 4,400 years ago, there was a big flood. Kind of hard to have a desert completely underwater. Wouldn't you agree? So in my opinion, if looking at the Bible, I would say the world's largest and oldest desert should only be right around 4,400 years old. It is. Now, what about oil? 
Does anyone here work in the oil and gas industry? No? Okay. So do you know when they drill into the earth sometimes, they actually end up hitting oil, right? The oil's under extreme pressure, uh, sometimes up to 20,000 pounds per square inch of pressure. Enormous. Well, why is this important? Well, the geologists that work for the oil companies that locate the oil underground say that the rocks cannot handle the amount of pressure for more than about 10,000 years. What happens with it? I know, I know, the weight of the rocks themselves create pressure that contributes to that 20,000 pounds per square inch. I get it. However, the pressure of the oil is greater than what's called the overburden of the rocks. At about 5,000 feet deep below the Earth's crust, the pressure created from just the weight of the rocks is about 6,000 pounds per square inch, okay? Well, where do we get the other 18,000 pounds per square inch? Well, that's the pressure of the oil created inside of there. After 10,000 years, the pressure would have been too much and the oil should have completely leaked off. So, I have two questions. Where did the oil come from? And why is it still under pressure? Given that the evolutionary geologist age of the Earth is about four and a half billion years old. Why is it still under pressure and where did it immediately come from, right? Well, they say oil and gas are for organisms that once lived in the sea, changed by heat and pressure into oil. That's correct. That's how oil is formed. You take organic matter of some type, you add heat, you add pressure, and you will get oil. Converting oil or organic waste into oil, okay? In 1971, they learned how to make oil in about 20 minutes in a laboratory. In Australia, this $22.4 million uh, refining plant in Australia, they take sewage sludge, they add heat and pressure, and they create oil in about 30 minutes. We're gonna run out. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, there's a factory in Texas. It takes turkey guts from slaughter plants, okay? And they turn it into oil by adding heat and pressure. They say, we duplicated what Mother Nature does, but what Mother Nature took millions of years to do, we can do in about 30 minutes. Does anyone see an issue with that? So if they're already assuming that the natural process is millions of years, and they're like, well, we can do it in 30 minutes. Well, there's a kind of a disconnect here, wouldn't you agree? That we should be able to see quicker processes for which we're creating oil. I mean, golly, you're doing it in labs all the time right now. The Sinclair Oil Factory, or um, gas, uh, uh, what do you call them, stations, right? They have the dinosaurs, their logo. You guys ever seen any Sinclair places? Okay, if you'll notice, right under their motor oil, it says mellowed for over 100 million years. They assume that the oil only came just from the dinosaurs, right? I have a different idea. I think about 4,400 years ago, there was a big flood, destroyed everything, all the organic material was compressed, you had heat, and the weight of the silt when the uh, waters receded and washed off, and boom, there, we have our oil. It doesn't take millions of years to add heat and compression, as we just saw in laboratories. Okay, there's another one. Um, I doubt anyone's ever gone to Greenland, have you? No? Okay. Greenland, contrary to its name, is actually full of ice, right? So in Greenland, 
they take ice cores to try and extrapolate an age of the Earth to see how old the Earth is. So basically what they're doing is they're taking the ice cores, they're drilling down, stick a big pipe into it, pull the ice up, and they count the rings, right? There's a giant freezer that stores these ice uh, cores outside of Denver, Colorado, and Lakewood. They go here to Greenland to drill holes through the ice and take a look at it. It's a government project. <laughs> so they save the ice cores in that freezer. I mean, it's huge. It's an absolutely enormous freezer. They say that the rings here, light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, look like tree rings, and they're very actually easy to see um, on the ice, are from summer, winter, summer, winter, summer, winter, okay? The deepest hole that they ever drilled was right around 10,000 feet. Now, they counted the rings, the ice rings, on them, and they found 135,000 of them. So they say, well, Kirk, you're so stupid, uh, we can at least show that the Earth is minimum 135,000 years old, and you're going around saying it's you know, less than 10,000 years old. However, they are assuming a couple of things. They're assuming that these light, dark, light, dark are summer, winter, summer, winter, summer, winter, right? Couldn't it just be hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold? How many times do we get that here in the Pacific Northwest? I mean, have you guys ever gone through a day where we've had hail, we've had like 70 degree sun, we've had rain, we've even had snow? Uh, this is all in one day, right? <laughs> where we're just, what is going on with the weather here? So the annual rings are actually very, very thin. What they didn't know about is something called the Lost Squadron. Have you guys ever heard about that? Okay, the Lost Squadron, what happened? Well. Some uh, planes during World War II ran out of fuel and they ended up landing in Greenland. They landed there in 1942, okay? The airplanes were left and completely forgotten until a millionaire from Kentucky got a brilliant idea. Let's go find those airplanes. Based on their idea, right, that we have only maybe a millimeter or so of, of uh, ice layers each year, because remember we have 135,000 years supposedly of ice per 10,000 years, we should be able to dig these up pretty quickly. It shouldn't be covered by that much ice. Well, when they finally got there in 1990, after 48 years when this millionaire decided to do it, they were buried under 263 feet of ice. They had to use ground-penetrating radar to find the planes. Based on their 135 years in the 10,000-foot core sample, they're estimating about 13 and a half years per foot of ice, roughly. Yeah, Jess. The plane made it sink faster. I'm, I'm glad you're going there. And there, there's a huge evidence that that's not the case, okay. okay? Except in 48 years, the planes were covered by 263 feet of ice. So by their logic, the planes should have been buried about 3,400 years ago, rather than 48 years ago, okay? <laughs> they took the planes apart piece by piece, obviously, because I mean, it's the you know, most cost efficient way to end up doing that. And they brought it up and put it together in Middlesboro, Kentucky. That's where the museum is, where the Lost Squadron is. Okay, the ice rings, when they went down there, they saw they passed through hundreds upon hundreds of these ice rings. And you can see this is how they brought it up, you know, took the wings off, took the fuselage off, and when they melted those, those holes. Okay, in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, it's literally in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so we have it at 48 years, okay, when they finally discovered them. 
and they were under 263 feet of ice below the surface. That's about five and a half feet per year worth of ice. 10,000 divided by five and a half is about 1,824 years. The deeper ice is pressed into finer layers, so 4,400 years to accumulate the ice at the poles really isn't an issue. By the way, to answer Jess's question, the planes did not sink into the ice because of how they were found. What's up front in front of an airplane? <laughs> it's the engine, right? If the planes, by their weight, caused them to sink into the ice, we would have found the planes like this. We found them completely flat. So the ice, or be completely destroyed, right. So we had the ice forming on top of the planes. So, like I said, the, the museum here, at 62 feet down, they hit plywood cover left by the 1983 expedition eight years. That's eight feet a year. Plywood, right, at 62 feet down. They went through many hundreds of rings to get to these planes. So how can you go through many hundreds of rings, which are supposedly years, in something that you know was deposited 48 years ago? Shouldn't there be somewhere around 48? The guys that actually dug this out heard that argument and they said, who told you those were annual rings? Obviously they're not. It's hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. We can have that many times throughout the day. We can have that many times throughout the week. It's not summer, winter, summer, winter. It just changes in temperature, what we're seeing in the ice, obviously, right? Or it's like individual storms, too. Individual storms, exactly. Because as the snow is deposited onto the top of the ice, it doesn't really have a chance to melt. It gets compacted. It gets to be darker. The ice that melts and forms a little bit of water is lighter ring. So yeah, you, you get the idea. It's just difference in, in temperatures or differences in storms. However, this article here in Scientific American, February of 98, still calls these ice cores annual layers. OK, I hope that the writer of this article is actually sincerely mistaken and sincerely ignorant, because ignorance can be fixed. You can learn an answer to that. However, stupid is forever, right? What's the point of all of this? The point is we have the folks that are teaching our young people are so indoctrinated that regardless of evidence right in front of them, they're going to still be saying the exact same things right? An anti-God worldview, an anti-creator worldview. We are taught that different layers are at a different age. You guys ever seen this? The geologic rock column, okay? We can see all the different layers, Cretaceous, Jurassic, Permian, Triassic, Cambrian, all of it, okay? The geologic rock column only exists in one place on Earth, in the textbooks. The way the geologic rock column is presented in the textbooks it's impossible. It'd be about 250 miles thick, okay? It, it doesn't work out this way. And we'll get into that um, more advanced, more in depth in the next coming weeks. We talked about this before. All over the world, petrified trees are found standing up through many layers. We actually see it right now in Spirit Lake. They're connecting layers thought to be millions of years apart that go straight up through different layers. How is that possible if each layer represents a different age, right? Here's one in Nova Scotia, Canada, 1997. This one next coming up is my favorite. This is a 30-foot petrified tree, one of hundreds found in the Kettles coal mines near Cookville, Tennessee. The top and bottom are in different coal seams, dated thousands of years differently in age. The bottom 
if you notice, uh, is coalified, the middle is petrified, and then the top is coalified. This tree should be going through hundreds of millions of years worth of layers. It's one solid tree. Wood actually ends up petrifying very, very quickly. Scientists estimate there are about 20,000 trees at the bottom of Spirit Lake right now. Many of them are buried upright. Some are already 15 feet deep in the sediments. They seem to settle out by species, so it looks really cool under there. It looks like a, an actual forest was just buried quickly, but we know the difference. Here's a petrified piece of firewood in Arizona's petrified forest. You can still see the hinge cut into it from the ax or the saw. How's it millions of years old? Here's a petrified fish giving birth to another fish. Now, I know some of you ladies have had some very, very long labors, but I don't think it takes millions of years to give birth. Yes? There was one tree that I came across in my studies where it was literally upside down, <laughs> and the top was in the Precambrian, and the root section was how many layers above that? So the comment for those listening uh, online was, one of us have, in our study, seen a petrified tree uh, where the top is actually flipped upside down. The top is on the, the bottom, and the bottom of the root layers are up on the top, going through hundreds of millions of years worth of Cambrian and Precambrian layers, rock layers. How would that happen? Well, I have a theory about that. You guys are probably going to guess that. Here's a cowboy boot, petrified cowboy boot, with the cowboy's leg still inside of it. <laughs> so what's the point? Petrification, fossilification, doesn't take hundreds of millions of years to do. Obviously, it can happen very, very rapidly. Here's a petrified pickle. Any canners out there? <laughs> petrified peanuts. Petrified charcoal, as in Kingsford charcoal briquettes. Here's a petrified teddy bear. So what about the Mississippi River? Anyone ever been there and seen the Mississippi? Big, big river, right? The Mississippi River deposits about 80,000 tons of sediment every single hour. That is a lot of mud washing out of that river. 80,000 tons of mud per hour and dumps off right around New Orleans, okay? The delta there is certainly getting larger and larger. We've seen that. They studied the delta pretty carefully, came to the conclusion that it had to take about 30,000 years to get all of that mud there, okay? I have a question. If the Earth is indeed millions of years old, why isn't the entire Gulf of Mexico full of mud by now, based on that rate? Based on what we've seen with phosphification, oil, isn't it possible that the 30,000-year timeline could be incorrect? How about if there was a worldwide flood and what would happen when those floodwaters finally receded and washed away? How much sediment would be deposited then? Don't you think, whoosh, in about 40 minutes, you'd have enough sediment to form half of that gulf, right? Here's the experience of a fella in Louisiana when he worked for Chevron. They drilled into a tree that was standing straight up, 60 feet tall, under 14,000 feet of mud. How's that possible? 14,000 feet of mud they drilled into a tree that was 60 feet tall when he worked for Chevron in the drilling uh, industry. Here's a picture of the oldest tree in the world. It's called the bristlecone pine. Pretty cool looking tree, isn't it? 
it grows very, very slowly. Here's a chunk of it. It's only 30 inches around, yet it's over 700 years old. It grows extremely slow. The oldest tree here is, they've calculated based on the tree rings at 4,300 years max. Okay, I have a question. If the earth is millions of years old, why don't we have an older tree someplace? Why would the oldest tree be right around 4,300 years ago? You guys are getting where I'm going. I have a theory about that. <laughs> I think about 6,000 years ago, God created everything. 4,400 years ago, there was a big flood. So based on that, on the Bible accounts, I would guess that the oldest tree on the planet would be no more than about 4,300 years old. It is. What about the Great Barrier Reef? Has anyone ever been out there in Australia? Okay. The Great Barrier Reef is absolutely the largest coral reef in the world. It's right off the coast of Brisbane, Australia. During World War II, the Great Barrier Reef was um, getting damaged through bombs and ships and anchors. Okay? Some of us are old enough to actually remember that. So we had the environmentalists go out and study the Great Barrier Reef. What did they end up doing? They took 20 years to watch it grow. It was a government project. <laughs> 20 years, they're standing here watching it growing, okay? After watching it for 20 years, they concluded that the reef could be no less than 4,200 years old based on their rate at which they were watching it grow. Okay, I have a question. <laughs> if the earth is millions of years old, why don't we have an older reef someplace? Why is the oldest reef only 4,200 years old? I have a theory about that. <laughs> Pretty common theory, right? You guys are getting where I'm going. How about Niagara Falls? Anyone ever been there? Okay. Niagara Falls is absolutely phenomenal. The textbook here says that Niagara Falls has been eroding for about 9,900 years. Okay. How do they know that? How do they know 9,900 years ago is when Niagara Falls first started eroding? Well, the rocks are certainly breaking off the edge. All waterfalls do that. We know that. And they end up eroding backwards, right? You have the river going one way and then the edge coming backwards as rocks and sediment gets ripped off by the water, especially that amount of powerful of water. From what we can measure from science, Niagara Falls is moving backwards about 4.7 feet per year. That we can actually measure and we have measured, okay? Do you guys remember way, way back early on in our class, we talked about a guy named Charles Lyell the uniformitarian geology guy. He was the one who wrote the book that Charles Darwin took on the HMS Beagle and it really messed with his faith, okay? Charles Weil actually went there in 1872 and took a look at Niagara Falls. And he saw that it was right there at the time. And he said, well, it should be, have started right here. He said it took about 10,000 years worth of erosion to move from there to there. Well, the people that lived there actually read that and said, well, hold on, Charlie, we've, we've lived here. It erodes a lot faster than you think. They give us this simple calculation, okay, of three and a half miles. That's what we've able, been able to see in 160 years worth of erosion. That puts Niagara Falls at less than 4,500 years old based on what we can actually measure today. There's seven and a half miles. A gorge about seven and a half miles long runs just below Niagara Falls. The textbook tells us simple calculation shows that it has been 9,900 years. It's actually wrong. It's very wrong on their assumption based on what we're seeing. Here is where Niagara Falls is right now. 
Here's where it started when we first started measuring it. So if it's simply right there, I have a question. Why hasn't it eroded back to Lake Erie by now if the Earth is millions of years old? Why do we even still have Niagara Falls? Why is Niagara Falls no older than about 4,400 years? I have a theory about that. <laughs> How about the stalactites? Have you guys ever been uh, to see those caves? Stalactites, stalagmites, right? They're beautiful. It's amazing, amazing to walk through there. What's the first thing that the uh, guide ends up telling you? Don't touch, it takes millions of years to form, right? Well, they actually did studies on these stalactites and said that they form only about two and a half inches per thousand years. Um, I don't think so. There's a lot of evidence to show a much greater rate of formation than that. Here are some 50 inch stalactites growing under the Lincoln Memorial. They did that in 40 years. Here are two inch stalactites in Florida. In only one year, they end up doing this in a freezer shed. Here's a guy in a building in Indiana with huge cave formations in only 40 years due to water and mineral leakage. A mine in Australia was shut down for 55 years. When they opened it back up, there were huge, huge cave formations in there in only 55 years. A guy in Wyoming had a hot mineral spring and decided to stick a pipe into it in his yard. The water came out and bubbled out the sides. They call it the TP fountain. The guy died and they, his family ended up uh, leaving the pipe sticking in the ground. As the water evaporated, it left mineral deposits. About 95 years after the pipe was stuck into the ground, this is what it looked like in 95 years. So do those stalactites take millions of years to form? No, they absolutely do not. Yeah? Like in those caves, it took that long because of the rate of the water is coming through. Can they measure like how much it is? Or they're just, that's just their theory? That's just their theory, yep. I mean, I have so many different slides in a parking garage at Texas A&M in Texas. Uh, they had to put a drip pan and a drainage system in the parking garage because stalactites were forming on the students' cars, right? <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's many, many, many evidences that this process happens very, very rapidly. It does not take forever. So why aren't students shown the evidence for the universe being young? Why do you think that that is? Because they can trace it back to creation. Exactly. As my wife said, for those listening online, because they can trace it back to a creation point and to a creator and an originator, right? And that's going to create a very serious problem. So why do you think our young people are being uh, brainwashed in our schools, right? Don't you think that Centralia, Chehalis, our students are being taught this right now in public schools? Don't you think that they're being brainwashed? And, and you're probably wondering, well, how difficult is it to be brainwashed, okay? Well, not hard at all. I'm gonna brainwash some of you. Some of you have probably heard this before, or at least you can figure it out. But those of you that figure it out, all I want you to do when you uh, get the answers, I just want you to raise your hand, okay? So what's gonna happen is I'm gonna tell you a story, and I'm gonna ask you two questions about the story when I finish telling it. And after that, uh, we'll have question and answer, and you know, we'll head off in the church. But I do have one video to show you as well. Like I said, if you figure out the answer, just raise your hand, don't blurt it out, okay? Here's the story. Once upon a time, a man left home jogging. He jogged a little ways and turned left 
He jogged a little ways and turned left. He jogged a little ways, turned left, and then jogged back home. As he was jogging home, he noticed two masked men were waiting for him at home. Here's the questions. Who were the masked men? Why did he leave home jogging? <laughs> My wife figured it out. She's heard it, yes. Anyone else figure it out? Okay. Let's do it again. Once upon a time, a man left home jogging. Turned left, jogged a little ways, turned left, jogged a little ways, turned left, jogged a little ways, and jogged back home. When he, was, when he got back to home, there was two masked men waiting for him. Who were the masked men? Okay. Now, here's the cool part. I'm going to unbrainwash you. And you're going to feel, it's, it's amazing when you get unbrainwashed. It, you feel so light, and you're like, wow, that is so cool. I can actually... Um, see what's going on, what the actual truth is. How am I going to unbrainwash you? I'm going to tell you the exact same story, word for word, verbatim, but I'm going to show you some pictures to go along with it, and instantly, like that, you're going to become unbrainwashed. You guys ready? Okay. Once upon a time, a man left home jogging. He turned left, jogged a little ways, turned left, jogged a little ways, turned left, and jogged all the way back home. When he got home, two masked men were waiting for him. Who were they? The catcher and the umpire. Is it that easy to be brainwashed? Yep, it absolutely is. Extremely easy. Our little ones in kindergarten. What's that? <laughs> the catcher? <laughs> that would be cool, but I don't know. Our little ones starting kindergarten. They're given this book. I can read about dinosaurs. Cool subject, very fascinating, especially for a little one. Can anyone guess what the first sentence in this book is? Yep. Millions of years ago, huge dinosaurs walked the earth, right? Right there. The Bible says that before the flood came, the people inhabiting the earth lived to be about 900 years old. How is that possible? We'll be covering that next time, okay? We'll be starting that. But what do we do with this information? It's time to go out, folks. It's time to go out and share this with the skeptics, share this with those whom we love that we know don't believe. We are literally standing in a world that is burning, and we can offer them fire insurance, okay? That's the point of the gospel. That's the point of all of this. It's to increase our faith so that we can indeed go out and share this amazing, amazing news with those whom we love. Now, there's a quick video I want to show. There was uh, a couple questions. What about starlight and time? How, if the universe and the Earth is created within about 10,000 years, how can we see light from stars that are hundreds of millions of light years away? I can do an explanation of that, or I can allow an astrophysicist. How about that? So he's going to lose some of us, but... I want to make sure, because he does a much better job than I do. Okay. Why are you not working? Yeah, it's fine. Let's turn up the volume so we can hear this.
Ya. Okay. Dr. Jason Lyle. He works for the Institute of Creation Research down in Santee, California, but he's a PhD in astrophysics, so like I said, he can explain this a lot better than I can. The question is, for those listening at home again, how can the Earth and the universe be recently created when we're looking at hundreds of millions of light years away light from stars? How can that happen? Does distant starlight prove the universe is old? One of the most common questions that I get asked when people find out that I'm a creation astronomer is what about distant starlight? How did God get the light from those distant galaxies to Earth in thousands of years that the Bible says were the, the age of the universe? Well, there are actually several different ways to get light to travel those enormous regions in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, one, one way is what's called an anisotropic synchrony convention. That's a little bit like uh, time zones on the Earth. You know, I can leave uh, Kentucky at around 4 o'clock in the airplane and arrive in Colorado at 4 o'clock without going infinitely fast or anything like that. And the reason is because the way time is defined on Earth, we use a local time convention as we travel across the world. As long as I'm going west, that'll work. Well, a similar thing can be done in space, and in fact has been done since uh, ancient times. And so perhaps God is using that, that anisotropic time zone uh, model of zones out in space there. And so light can travel these enormous regions in no time at all. Light can be created with the star on, the day, on day four, and it can arrive on Earth on day four, you see, so it's not really an issue. But there are other creationists that have proposed that God used uh, perhaps time dilation, uh, gravitational time dilation, for example. Einstein tells us that time can flow at different rates in different environments. That's something that we've demonstrated with atomic clocks. We know it's true. So perhaps time flows more slowly on Earth than it does in the distant region of the universe because the Earth is in a gravitational uh, well. That is, it's near the center of a finite amount of galaxies, and therefore time would flow more slowly on Earth than it does out in the distant region of space. And so light can trickle in at its own slow rate, but on Earth only thousands of years elapses. That's an interesting possibility. There's also an offshoot of that called uh, Carmelian physics that would allow basically the same thing to happen, but it adds an extra dimension to, uh, to a general relativity. So these are interesting possibilities, but we should also keep in mind the possibility that God may have used a supernatural mechanism. After all, God is not bound by the laws of nature as we are, especially during the creation week when God was doing things in a supernatural rather than a naturalistic uh, way. And so that's certainly a possibility as well. Maybe that we can't understand how an infinite God can do it. That doesn't mean that he can't do it. He's after all infinite. One answer that we would not recommend using is that God simply created the beams of light already on their way. And the reason we don't uh, think that that's a good answer is because we see things happen in space. We see stars explode, for example. And if, that, if God just created the beam en route, then that means that the star that we saw explode never really happened. God just painted a picture of that explosion along this light beam uh, when, in fact, the star never exploded, never even existed. And so I don't think that God is going to create pictures of fictional events out in space there. And if he did out in space, why not here on Earth? We really couldn't trust our senses if God created light beams that, that don't really come from their source. So I don't think that's the best explanation. And another thing I want to point out, though, is that the Big Bang, the alternative to biblical creation, also has a similar type of problem, a light travel time problem of its own. It's called the horizon problem. And basically, it has to do with the cosmic microwave background that we see uh, streaming from the distant regions of the universe. We find that it's very uniform. And that shouldn't be, because in the Big Bang model, uh, it should have different temperatures at different 
different places. Why is it so uniform? Obviously, light energy had to travel from the, the hotter regions to the cooler regions to equilibrate those temperatures, but there hasn't been enough time. Even in 13.7 billion years, there's not enough time for light to travel from one side of the physical universe to the other. And so that's a light travel time problem for the Big Bang. It seems to me that if the alternative to biblical creation has the same type of problem as biblical creation, then you can't argue that distant starlight somehow disproves biblical creation in favor of the Big Bang. And after all, God is omniscient. He could have used a mechanism that we do know about, or he could have used a mechanism that we don't know about. But it's not a problem for an infinite God to get light from distant galaxies to Earth in thousands of years. Makes sense? Or as clear as mud? So what was he saying? Let me interpret that in English. The, the main point that I want you guys to take away um, is the end, what he said. We both have the same problem. Biblical creationists, young earth creationists on one side, and old earth, old universe evolutionists. We have the same problem. How did the light from the stars get here? Based on the Big Bang model, we still don't have enough time. We don't have enough time for the light to be here at only 13.7 billion years old for the Big Bang Theory, the light still shouldn't be here based on its current rate of travel. Young Earth creationists, how can we have a young Earth when we're looking at starlight hundreds of millions of light years away? Now the two ideas, let me kind of bring it down into in English that he was talking about. The, the one is what's known as time zones and that's how it works on space. Do you guys get his analogy that you can leave Kentucky on an airplane at 4 p.m. and arrive in Denver, Colorado still at 4 p.m.? We've actually seen it, Devin and I, on our flight to Florence, Italy. Um, the sun went down, and literally like three hours later, we watched it rise again on the plane. It was the craziest thing that we've ever seen, right? So we have these differing time zones, so it's not that big of a deal to see light traveling, you know, hundreds of millions of light years in a couple thousand years. The other idea, or the other theory formulated, is due to gravitational pull, pull, and we end up getting this from Einstein, okay? Einstein's different theories of relativity. Because the Earth, is what he's saying, we're kind of in the center of this whole gravitational vortex of, of the universe, right? And we have seen with atomic clocks, time literally speeds up and slows down based on the medium in which it's being traveled through. Yes, time is not a constant. How do you measure time? It's measured by the speed of light, right? That's not a constant based on what it's traveling through. So it's quite possible to see that maybe, just perhaps, time here on Earth travels far, far slower than it does maybe out in space where there's no interruptions, nothing to prevent it from going faster and faster. But I do want you to understand um, the main point that he's making when you are talking about your skeptic friends, don't use the argument that you know God just created the beams of light already on their path and then we see them now. Because what he's saying, because if he did that, then we wouldn't be seeing the star exploding, which we do see now, and everything about reality would just be a giant lie. And that doesn't fit all right, with the character of God. But I think the best answer, like he said at the end, is to explain to your friends, we both have the same problem. Based on your time frame, there's not enough time for the light to get here. Based on my time frame, I don't understand how it got here so quick. So we literally have the same problem. Light shouldn't be here. <laughs> it, right? It must be something. And I elect to choose an all-powerful, omniscient God in order to get that light here using supernatural processes and means. Right? Um, static a bit, like the 
what is it called? Cosmic static, the sound, the background noise. That just yes, but next week. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I literally have all that going on next week. Don't want to steal my thunder there. Um, the question for those listening online was the cosmic um, background noise, the static um, that we see created from um, time and, and, and the universe. You know, where does that come from? And how does that play into a creationist worldview? So any questions, any other questions that aren't stealing my thunder? <laughs> no? Okay, Jess. Um, okay, so to keep, so not like us who believe in creationists, but do some people think for like with the oil, because they can put more heat and more pressure, that's how they can make it happen in 30 minutes, and it was less heat and less pressure, that's why it took so long? No. No. Just as much heat and pressure. Yeah. So they literally have nothing backing it. Right. Um, so the, the idea that they're going on is, like I said, a, a guy named Charles Lyell wrote this um, groundbreaking, no pun intended, he was a geologist, um, book, and it's called Uniformitarian Geology. And the idea on that book, and all, almost all evolutionists abide by today, is that the process that we see today is what's been going on consistently throughout millions of years. And that's how they get the idea of the time frame. So they're seeing if we can take it and, and we um, have this idea that it's always been happening this way, apart from the labs, right? Just it takes heat and pressure, so it must take immense heat and immense pressure. And that can only be created in their minds through millions of years worth of heat and pressure. It can't be created in 30 minutes in a lab in Texas or 20 minutes you know, in a um, sewage treatment plant in Australia. Then it just had to have been millions of years old. So that makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense. Exactly. Yeah. No. No, it doesn't make sense. The, the the time frames actually don't add up, because they want us to believe that millions of years is what enables this evolution to be possible. But the millions of years actually creates more of a problem. And you're right. Just exactly because when we start to get degrading principles happening, you know, at a much greater rate, right? Sunlight over millions of years isn't going to construct anything. It's going to destruct a whole bunch of stuff. It doesn't. Except, and that's been my point all along since teaching creation science, is I just want them to admit that it is a theory. It is a faith-based system. Just as my theory is a faith-based system, so is theirs. You can't teach that um, evolutionary science is an absolute fact and say that mine is a, is a faith based on fantasy. It doesn't work. We both have faith. It's just op opposite ends of the spectrum. I believe in the beginning God. You believe in the beginning dirt. In my mind, a creator being is a lot more plausible than dirt coming alive after it rains on it for millions of years. And then it finds something else to marry. That's a trick, right? And then it starts reproducing, and then we climb up out of the sludge, and, and here we are today. Any other questions? We're really not macroevolution, right. Micro, which is adaptation, yeah, we see tons of that. We see it through, you know, bacterial resistant. Um, but that's changing the uh -huh. Yep. It's a change within a kind. By the way, speaking of changes within kinds, you know, we've had the, the questions about what about, you know, different crocodiles. We have saltwater crocs and we have freshwater crocs. Uh-huh. I bet they had a common ancestor. Crocodile. Right? Not complicated stuff. Has anyone ever kept fish um, for a hobby? I once had a friend. He did an experiment. This was um, in college. I forgot to, I should email him, get slides. Uh, he, he sent me pictures. It's really cool. I can't remember the type of fish. But he had freshwater fish in this tank. Okay, And over a period of four weeks, he started slowly adding salt 
sea salt into the water, okay? The fish became saltwater fish, they lived. Then he wanted to see, okay, so he took his fish out, put them in a freshwater tank, they died in 20 minutes. Yeah. I actually did that once where I had it. Oh, Mary did that. I didn't do the whole process. Okay. But I tried it because they kept getting like light and weird things. And mm -hmm. I was like, I wonder what would happen if you made it slightly salty. You know, salty. Like, because, you know, salt naturally yeah. kind of kills things. So I did, like, a little bit. How'd it work? And they, were, they actually were healthier. Yeah. Yeah, they gradually adapted to become saltwater fish, right? Because I've had the arguments about, you know, the flood theory and the worldwide flood. You know, well, what do you do with all of the saltwater fish or, or freshwater? I mean, how does that work? Well, you're assuming that it's salt water during the flood. I'm not, right? I'm assuming that it's fresh water because why am I assuming that it's fresh water? Do you guys remember? Huh? It's rain, right? And you guys remember what's happening in the oceans right now? It's getting saltier. We can see the salination content of the oceans increasing year after year. So obviously it, that means it used to be what? Less salty, right? So we can go backwards from there. It's probably more fresh water, maybe a little bit of salt. I don't know. Um, I wasn't there 4,400 years ago. Any other questions? Yes. I do know that one of the reasons they say the coal oil beds are so old, even though it doesn't make sense that they, they can't pull out the sea, is they use um, carbon-14 dating on the coal and oil. Yeah, and we're going to get into carbon-14 in depth. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, carbon-14 has, has major, major issues. Uh, like I said, we'll get into that in depth um, in the next couple of weeks. But how unreliable is carbon-14? Um, hugely. They've, they've carbon-dated, you know, woolly mammoths that they've pulled up. Uh, its skin was like 22,000 years old. Um, the contents of its stomach was 14,500 years old. That's an issue, okay, <laughs> using carbon-14 dating. And then they use that as a, quote, exact science. Um, based on, you know, to, to give the idea of their ages, right? Yeah, it has issues, major issues. Could they take, like, the tusk and, like, a bone? Or is that always a 22? Maybe, like, the contents of the stomach, it ate it when it was um, 12 Oh, so, like, the stomach, not what was in the stomach. Uh-huh. The stomach might Yep. Yeah, and they've even had, you know, the leg was a couple million years old, its tusk was, you know, like 35 million years old. I mean, it, it's huge discrepancies of the same animal. Yeah, it, it just doesn't work. Yeah, and again, carbon isn't consistent. Yeah, Mary's comment for those listening, carbon is not consistent, right? Again, they're assuming that idea of uniformitarian geology that the amount of carbon raining down on something has always been at the same rate from now to hundreds of millions of years ago. The only thing you can examine when you're, you're carbon dating something, a bone, is it died. You have no idea how much carbon was raining down on it at that point. You don't. The example I always use, say my hydroflask here, was a lit candle and you guys walked in and I asked you, how long has this candle been burning? I don't know. I need to know how tall the candle was before you lit it. And then I can take simple measurements with a ruler and see the rate at which this candle burns down and I can give you a guess of how long it's been burning. But if you have no idea how tall the candle was when I lit it, you cannot accurately, even remotely guess at how long this candle's been burning. You just can't. You're missing a vital, vital piece of information. If it was blown out in between. <laughs> or if it was blown out in between, right. There's a lot of stuff that can happen in between that throws off carbon dating. It doesn't work. Uh, are we out of time? What time is it? 10.27? Yeah. So let's close in a word of prayer, guys. Father, thank you again so much for allowing us to, to gather um, God, I just praise you over the truth of your word and that we can absolutely know that your word is true. Um, please give us the, the strength and the courage just to go out and share this uh, with those that we know 
are not followers of our view. Um, bless our week and our day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.